Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Wrap. My name is Bela Seabrow. Thank you to Five Pounds Central for hosting the show. I have not produced an episode for a few weeks, as I have been spending a great deal of time volunteering on behalf of the displaced people in Israel and the IDF. I'm um, also going to be a bit vulnerable here. What happened on October 7th to the victims and their families, their suffering will always be with them. It will always be a part of them. This is not something anyone can get over. And for me, and I know that I speak for so many who are not direct victims, but I cannot come to terms with the atrocities that were committed on October 7th. The brutalities of murders, rapes, mutilations, tortures of innocent babies, children, women, and men, because they happen to be Jews. Or they happen to have been in a location where Jews were. What I'm having an even more difficult time accepting is how so many people within several nations that are saying it's, it's the Jews that are at fault. They are the occupiers. The Jews are the aggressors. The Jews are committing genocide. What is happening to society? Where is the international outrage? To date, 120 plus hostages are still being held in Gaza. Medical exams of the released hostages revealed physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. Where is world condemnation in Hamas's intentional abuse, murder, and torture? As a child of Holocaust survivors, my earliest memories was hearing of Nazi abuse and that the world stood still. And yet again, history is repeating itself. With us today is Alex Trayman. He is based in Jerusalem. He is CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief of JNS Syndicate, JNS.org. So he needs no introduction. He has covered eight Israeli elections, numerous conflicts, including Israel's complete military and civilian withdrawal from Gaza in 2005. Alex, welcome, welcome to the Definitive Wrap. Thank you so much, Bela. Good to be here. Um, Can you tell us What's going on right now? Um, give us an update um, about what's going on in the IDF military operation. Yeah, it's been intensive fighting for 10 weeks. Uh, the IDF is basically trying to wind down their operations in the north. There's still heavy fighting going on in the center and the south. Uh, the IDF is trying to uh, destroy as much of this uh, very extensive tunnel infrastructure that goes all up and down the entire Gaza Strip, hundreds of miles of tunnels, um, trying to target Hamas's senior leadership, including Yahya Sinwar and Mohammed Daif and others, and of course also trying to rescue hostages uh, if possible, and also to put as much pressure on Hamas as possible in order to get them uh, to want to come to the negotiations table to to release um, hostages and 
you know, they took over 240 hostages on October 7th. Uh, 110 of those have already been released as part of different prisoner exchanges. Uh, and the thinking is that perhaps in the coming days or weeks, we could get to a place of another release. Maybe they're talking about uh, up to 40, including all the remaining women and children and some of the elderly men. Uh, but ultimately, Israel, of course, would like to get back every single last one of the hostages Um whichever ones are alive. And it's, it's believed that many might be dead. So is there going to be a ceasefire? Is there another ceasefire to be expected? Well, it would be a temporary uh, cease in hostilities, not like a a formal ceasefire. It's definitely possible. Um, Meanwhile, I think that the IDF is, is inclined to continue fighting uh, until Hamas uh, puts uh, enough of uh, an offer on the table that it's that it's very meaningful. Why do you think there is so much American support for Hamas, particularly in the college campuses? Well, because they've planted these seeds for decades, and it's not all, all of a sudden that the uh, college students woke up and decided that Hamas is right and Israel's wrong. I mean, I, I was a recruiter for programs on college campuses you know, already 20-plus years ago, uh, and we already then started to see the phenomenon of the Israel apartheid week on the campuses. Uh, we started to already see that the Saudis and the Qataris were pouring money into the universities to fund the Middle Eastern studies programs. Um, and the Jewish community and many Jewish donors and, and other donors that, you know, like to see their names on the sides of science buildings and stuff like that, um, didn't make demands that this, needed to stop on the campus back then, you know, back then the argument was, you know, don't, don't give it more attention than it deserves. It's only a small group of people, uh, you know, just meet it with positive programming for Israel. They didn't, they didn't clamp down on this anti-Israel activity and rhetoric on the campuses 25 years ago. And it's just metastasized. Uh, and, and it's, but unfortunately the problem is bigger than the campuses now because. Oh Yeah. The graduates of those programs are now teachers of university programs. They're teachers in in high schools and public schools all across America. And many of the graduates of these uh, courses and programs are now running around the halls of Congress. And it's even worse than that. I mean, we would expect this not to happen on college campuses, but it's happening on the subways. It's happening on the streets. People are just doing their own thing. They're, They're going about shopping. And they're afraid to be seen as Jews. This is this is like pre-war two. This is like pre-war World War Two. That's what happened. Yeah. Those are the stories that I kept hearing about. Yeah, it's 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 a bad it's, situation. It's almost it's almost as though this is what this was inside of them, but they needed this episode to to just come forward and express how they really feel. It's become a trend to be anti-Semitic. And that's what's just that's what's so scary. I and I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around something else. The United Nations and everyone else keeps talking about the humanitarian crisis inside Gaza. So which begs the question, why doesn't the bordering Egypt, the country, the bordering Egypt, take them in. How come all those who scream and yell in support of Hamas, why don't they take in the Gazans? What's your take on all this? 
Well, you can understand why the Egyptians don't want them because it's a it's a radicalized population, and the Sinai is a is a lawless zone. And if if the Palestinians would come in there and they would be along Israel's border inside Sinai, then they would be responsible for the problem, and and they have enough problems. Uh, but it's not. You can understand why Egypt doesn't want them, but for all these people around the world that uh, claim that they care so much about the Palestinian yeah. people, including all the other countries in the Arab world, as well as uh, all those in the West. And, and don't forget, you know, in the Syrian civil war, you had you had 13 million people displaced and, and over 6 million of them were settled elsewhere, including in Turkey and in, and all throughout Europe. You know, even in the civil war, uh, even in the war rather between Russia and Ukraine, you had over 8 million displaced individuals, 6 million of them elsewhere. Uh, it would seem as though it would be a basic human and humanitarian right to be able to flee a war zone uh, if you choose to do so. And yet the gates are locked. The international gates community locked, exactly. is saying that not one of them can leave and so you have to ask the question, do these people really care? Do these countries really care about Palestinian lives to begin with, like they say they do? Or are they just using the Palestinians as a lever uh, to delegitimize uh, the state of Israel? So that's really what it comes down to. That's really what it comes down to, to delegitimize Israel. That's Hamas's strategy. Like everybody has to understand what Hamas's strategy is. Does Hamas think that they can defeat the IDF with Qassam rockets and uh, and assault rifles and RPGs when the IDF is one of the most battle ready and largest militaries in in the world? He has called up over three hundred thousand troops as an air force with F sixteens, Apache helicopters, precision guided weaponry. Like it's the. Hamas does not think that they can defeat the IDF on the battlefield. What they think is that the if the IDF comes inside Gaza and kills as many Hamas, uh, Gazan civilians as possible, that the international community will put pressure on Israel to stop. And if that pressure goes on Israel to stop, then Hamas can wave the flag of victory. This is all about the legitimacy of the state of Israel and public opinion about Israel. And, and that's the thing that we've only woken up to that now on October 7th, and we tried to ignore all the seeds that Hamas was planting before this attack for decades. And it's not just Hamas. It's it's their supporters. It's the Qataris. Right. You know, Back right. then, it was also the Saudis were doing that. It's Iran uh, and, and its proxies, which include also Hezbollah and the Houthis, all of them trying to, to create a ring of fire around Israel. Uh, on the battlefield, but but more importantly, to put pressure on Israel and to de- demonize and delegitimize Israel in all the international forums and in, in the realm of public opinion. Where is the Red Cross? Why aren't they doing anything to help the hostages? The Red Cross is just one of these other international agencies like the UN, uh, you know, the United Nations and the UN Human Rights Council. The Human Rights Council of the United Nations uh, um passes more resolutions against Israel, not more than any other country, more resolutions against Israel than against all other countries in the world combined. Okay. So when you look at all of these international bodies, some of them relating to the UN, others like Human Rights Watch, others like the Red Cross, they're not they're not neutral bodies. They've made it very clear. And and in Israel, you know, we saw that the hostages they were released via 
the Red Cross, okay, even though the Red Cross had no access to any of these hostages while they were in captivity. And and, and in, Israelis are saying it's a glorified Uber service for Hamas when they want to release hostages. Like we call up the Red Cross here, take them, send them across the border. That, that's where the Red Cross is. Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been receiving much flack since the beginning of the war. At first, because according to some opinions, it was not prevented. That, you know, there was, he received a lot of flack that was not prevented. And when, and when it did happen, to the horrific extent, it's human nature for people to place blame. I, I get it. It's human nature to do that. But my question to you is, what, what do you think about Netanyahu's um, war leadership right now at the present time? Well, it's important to note that uh, almost half the country, you know, has been trying to get Netanyahu out way before this war started. Okay, so it's a, we there was anti-Netanyahu protests going on for years already, um, and so of course, if they weren't able to get him out before the war, uh, certainly they would like to lay the blame on him uh, when when this happened. And there's there should be some level of responsibility. I mean, the first responsibility of uh israeli prime ministers to keep the citizens safe and and if there were failed policies that that led to a lax uh intelligence and and lax security Can we talk a little bit about that about the failed policies can we talk a little bit about that sure i mean first of all some of this really predates uh netanyahu i mean netanyahu inherited the oslo accords this whole formula of land for peace uh, this this happened before he became prime minister in, in the 90s, and and he had to deal with that. But the, that led also to the ex, expulsion of Jews from from Gaza, from these 21 thriving Jewish communities of what was called Gush Katif, 8,500 residents that were forcibly evacuated from their homes uh, under the administration of Ariel Sharon in order to create the pilot project for the independent Palestinian entity. You know, the... Before the disengagement, you had Jewish residents inside thriving Jewish communities, and you also had the military there side by side. And while there was definitely terror attacks, uh, attacks on some of these communities, uh, you had a situation where when terror would start to rear its head, the IDF was present and they could go in and to and to keep it at a, a low and manageable, somewhat manageable level. The second the the IDF pulls out, you see that a vacuum is created and it gets filled by Hamas. So, so, you know, part of it is, is a conceptual uh, problem of, of just land for peace formula blowing up in Israel's face. Uh, the, the, we're 30 years after the signing of the Oslo Accords. And I think most Israelis now understand that this whole process has been a complete disaster. Uh, but once the, once Israel pulled out of Gaza, you know, there was the idea that, you know, if just one rocket is fired on Israeli communities, that we're going to go back in there. But that wasn't the case. Uh, and Netanyahu, I think, you know, for for better or for worse, he always tried to avoid the all-out conflict, uh, and he always preferred to have a limited military response uh, in order to, you know, put the, I guess, put the 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 cap back on the jihadi bottle, so to speak, and, and just kick the can down the road to the next time all the time thinking that Israel will get stronger and stronger and hoping that Hamas would realize that it's it's not in their best interests financially and and otherwise to attack Israel but i think it was it's becoming clear now that that was giving them too much credit 
and thinking that they could essentially be bribed with a higher standard of living when when they've just proven that you know they're true to their charter. I mean, they're they're true to who they say they are, and they're true to their deeds. And and they've always said that they want to wipe the Jewish state off the map, and they've they've always used every dollar and every piece of equipment that's come into the Gaza Strip in order to build up their terror infrastructure. And at the same time, they've been working around the globe to to with their with their network to delegitimize Israel. So they've been planting all those seeds as well. Um, and so there there was a lot of failings. The the failing of to believing that having a superior intelligence and technologically is enough to know what's going on. You know, we've got Israel moved away from that classic intelligence of talking to people and seeing what's going on. They thought that you just monitor it using surveillance, that that's enough. Uh, and then also, you know, there's enough reports that there were, there was knowledge of this attack. You know, it wasn't something that happened uh, spontaneously, that this was being planned out for, for months, if not longer than that. And, and more right. and more information is coming out that the IDF and Israel did have uh, advanced notice of, of plans of an attack on this scale, but they, they chose to believe that that was aspirational. So that's the, that's the failings of conceptual failings, the failure of intelligence. And then there's also the failings on October 7th itself, because this border, which was supposed to be multi-billion dollar border was penetrated in more than 30 different locations by tractors, by, by simple explosives. And you had thousands of terrorists running around Southern Israel and and they were running around for hours, yes. hours and hours and hours before the IDF mounted a credible response. And you'd have to think that uh, that even though it was a holiday, even though it was Saturday morning, even though it happened right around uh, right around sunup, you know, right, they, they break, yeah. that that still the IDF could have mounted a response, could have gotten its Apache helicopters in the air and prevented. 240 hostages from being taken back across that border, you know, so all kind of uh, failings. And you can understand why Israelis, you know, want to hold the military responsible and also want to hold Netanyahu responsible. Um, you know, you have you are known to have direct insight into the thinking of the Netanyahu administration. So. In your opinion, why did it take so long for help to arrive? Well, I mean, I don't think that that's a policy uh, decision. You know, it's these are these are very very difficult questions, and uh, you know, the the state controller here has said that there's going to be a significant commission of inquiry into every aspect of uh, what happened on October seventh, and and there will be also in the conduct after October seventh. You know, I don't think it was a policy decision to be a uh, to make a a a bad response, but I I just think that uh, Israel was so unprepared. Um, there's also, there's also, um, reports that are, are not yet confirmed that there could have been some kind of a cyber attack on IDF uh, communications in the mornings of the, on, of the seventh that, that is there that evidence of that? We, we don't, we don't know. I, I don't think that, uh, Israel would want to, to let that be known at this stage if that was the case. Um, you know, so I think we're going to hopefully get answers at some point in the future, you know, you can just, but what I will say is that uh, from the moment of the attack, Netanyahu did understand that this wasn't some kind of a terror incident, that this was a declaration of war. Uh, He immediately mobilized the reserves 
Uh, he immediately mobilized international support from the United States, Great Britain, Germany, France, others. He formed a unity government with the, one of his uh, chief political opponents, Benny Gantz, uh, to demonstrate unity. And as Israel needed to, to move in, they, they've launched a ground operation. They've done something in Gaza, which they've never, ever done before. You know, they, they've really turned much of Gaza into a parking lot as they've overturned it, looking for the the tunnels and the weaponry and the the leaders, um, and they have made it very clear that their their goals of this war are to make sure that at the end Hamas ceases to exist, both as a military threat to Israel and also as the governing entity of the Gaza Strip. In your opinion, what do you think is going on with the hostages right now? I mean, it's a, it's it's a horrific situation. Uh, you know, we know that the hostages are not being treated very well. You know, the reports that have come out, you know, from those that were released about the the conditions that they were being kept in. You know, no place to go to the bathroom. Sometimes eating maybe you know a piece of bread or a little bit of rice. You see pictures of some of these uh, captives that they've lost tons of weight. Uh, many of them, you. Know, especially the older ones needing daily medication that they're not getting. Um, you know, in certain cases, sexual assault, yeah. uh, beatings, you know, reports of some being branded by the tailpipes of motorcycles. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely awful. And, and this is tugging at the heart's, of every Jew in Israel and beyond that there, that there are Jews suffering like this. And I can just tell you that Israel's doing everything that they can in their power to try to get them back, but it's not, they're not in Israeli possession. You know, they're, they're being held by Hamas uh, and Hamas is going to use them as a lever to try to get whatever concessions they can out of Israel and uh, to try to prevent Israel from ultimately winning the war. And as hard as Israel's trying to get the hostages back, still the the number one goal of the war has got to be to make sure that Hamas can never take a single hostage ever again. That they've recorded their atrocities on October 7th is not something that we would expect. You know, we would expect them to deny it, even though, yes, they're denying it now. With, with all the recordings, they're denying it. But were they instructed to record this? That that was a very unusual um, act. They're not trying to hide what they're doing. I mean, this is a it's a game of psychological warfare, uh, and they they want to a encourage and radicalize the rest of the society inside Gaza, inside the Palestinian areas that are out in Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, elsewhere. Uh, they wanted to show the great victory. They wanted to humiliate Israel. Yeah. Uh, and, and so they did that. And that's also why you take hostages. It's, it's part of a psychological warfare game. Yeah. And then you release videos of the hostages and you do like a drip campaign where you start to release hostages one by one. And you're, you're able to pull at the heartstrings and, and the minds of, uh, Israelis and those around the world. So this is a big part of their strategy and they, they've been doing that for years. Yeah. The world will never be the same again after this. Whatever happens, the world will never be the same. October 7th changed everything in Israel, the United States, and globally. Since Hamas's attack, the world has been rocked by waves of anti-Semitic protests. 
And I don't know, I don't know where this is going to go amongst the other tragedies that we're experiencing. Alex, we're out of time. Thank you for joining us today at the Definitive Wrap. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. Thanks so much, Bela. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.